Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. Okay, hi everyone. Today I'm here with author and researcher David Grant, who has written multiple books on the subject of Alexander the Great, who we've talked about some on this podcast. It always seems like all roads lead back to Alexander. Some of his books include Unearthing the Family of Alexander the Great, The Remarkable Discovery of the Royal Tombs of Macedon in 2019, and The Last Will and Testament of Alexander the Great, The Truth Behind the Death That Changed the Greco-Persian World Forever, which came out this month, I believe, and is available on Amazon. So, David, is that a is that a good introduction? Is there anything major I'm missing there? Um, not at all. You, you, you've uh, that was very smooth. <laughs> and uh, those are two books. There is a third book coming out in the spring, which is about the sources behind these mm. stories, both the tombs and his death. Um, a bit of a link book, if you like. But it's been a it's been a fascinating decade researching the the backstory of Alexander the Great and his family. Great, great. I definitely want to get into a little bit of discussion about the sources as well. And I think first, um, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself? And like you said, the last decade you've spent researching these subjects. Um, what led you down this down this path to to researching Alexander and investigating these mysteries around Alexander the Great? Well, well I guess like you know, like every author of Alexander, you start as a casual grazer of information, then as a voracious um, consumer of anything that's written about Alexander the Great. And a decade ago, I did a, um, a master's degree. And as I was writing the thesis um, and delving deeper into the sources, just so many problems within the sources, conflicts, and episodes that didn't seem to make sense. And, you know, I'm not alone in saying this. There's a lot of very famous authors on Alexander, including Robin Lane's Fox, has said, you know, the most peculiar episodes of ancient history are attached to Alexander. Mm. And uh, I started the hunt to try and piece together the missing, the building blocks um, behind predominantly his, his death and the related episodes, because an awful lot of the evidence for Alexander's death is in the successor wars in the decades after his reign. And to me, those decades, those 20 years are as absolutely as colorful, dramatic, and sensational as the reign of Alexander, 13 years, Alexander's reign himself. Mm, mm. And that's something we haven't talked about a whole lot. Like, like probably many people, I've spent a good amount of time reading about Alexander the Great, but I know very little about the era after Alexander. Um, so I think if we want to do this sort of chronologically a little bit, why don't we start with Alexander's death? And uh, can you just tell us a little bit about what what we do know about Alexander's death and then kind of get into a little bit of what we don't know or what's still unclear? Yeah, no, sure. Um, like most of the episodes attached to Alexander, what we don't know is greater than what we do know and always will be because we often don't know what we don't know, if you, if you get me. Right. Um, we know that he died in Babylon in June 323 BC, probably the 11th of June. I mean, historically, it, it was very much rated as the 10th of June, but um, 
recent um, looking at the astronomical diaries favors the morning of the 11th of June, 323 BC. The army had only returned to Babylon a few weeks before after 11 years campaigning through the Persian empire as far east as India. Um, Alexander's second in command, Hephaestion, had died the previous year in Ekbatana, the, the summer capital of the Persian kings. Mm. And all was not well in the empire of Alexander at that time. There had been three mutinies of his troops. There were Greek mercenaries walking back to Greece and refusing to garrison the cities that he set up. And the sources tell us of a lot of mysterious portents and superior diviners by the Chaldeans and his own um, superstitious troops that told him he shouldn't be entering the army by that very gate. It all, it all built up to this heralding in the, the divine and, and God-sanctioned death of Alexander some few weeks later. And we even have reports of a man, you know, bordering on insanity that he had lost all reason, um, as well as the rational reports of his making plans for the ongoing campaigning through Arabia and, and west towards Carthage as well. Okay. And I think it's worth mentioning that he was quite young, relatively speaking, what his early 30s, 32 or 33 years old when he died. Yeah, he was in his 33rd year, probably 32 and 10 months. We believe he was born in August. There's no proof of that. Um, and, um, you know, what he had done was topple the 220 year old Archimedes empire. Um, but it was a very fragile governorship of the empire by his garrison troops at that particular point in time. Okay. And this was sort of at, I mean, the strange thing about Alexander the Great, you know, people think about the empire of Alexander the Great and the empire of Rome and things like this. But, you know, the Roman empire lasted for hundreds of years, whereas Alexander, he, he sort of died at the height of at least the geographic sizes of his empire, right? It, whereas, I mean, you're also talking about how it was it was more fragile than than it may have seemed. But he essentially conquered the Persian Empire in surrounding areas, and you know was presumably going to continue to try to conquer more territories. Uh, you know, once he was healthy again, is that right? Yeah, I mean, Alexander's great dream was to campaign to the ends of the earth. The, the problem is nobody knew where the ends of the earth were. And his classical Greek education had taught him that he should have seen the encircling ocean um, from the top of the Hindu Kush or from the borders of India. And of course, uh, when they got to the Indus and crossed the Indus into most of the time was spent in what we would call modern day Pakistan. But, uh, mm. you know, in India to the Greeks was a third of the world, the unknown eastern portion. Um, his troops mutinied when rumors came in of great armies and an even greater river four months to the east. And the, the land of the Ceres, the, the silk merchants and the, well, the Chinese, as it was beyond that. And of course, this was a rude awakening to both Alexander and his men, that really the bounds of the world were so much greater than he could possibly bite off himself. But um, you're quite right. By the time he got back to Babylon, he was in control of the former Persian Empire. Um, he was friendly with the, the Indian kings over the other side of the, the Indus. Um, he had installed governments on every border and he controlled Greece, the Balkans, um, and right up to the Danube River. Um, so it was, a, it was a huge empire, but it was very fragilely governed and it had only recently been conquered and it was being garrisoned with relatively few troops. Hmm. And in terms of his actual death, 
how do you think he died and and what do you think the cause was i know this is uh, uh ongoing controversial question yeah yeah my my study in my book isn't so much on whether he was poisoned or what was the cause of his death i mean modern scholars generally discount the poison claims which is a little paradoxical but i'll come back to that in a second and they've postured anything from west nile encephalitis to typhoid malaria pneumonia um you know um, some sort of fever from drinking the excremental filled river of the euphrates in babylon and they they've really analyzed the conditions some modern studies do say that the condition of his body does fit in with some poisons but to put things in perspective only two predecessors of alexander in the fourth century bc were not assassinated and only three predecessors of the Persian great king Darius I were not assassinated. I mean, assassination was the most efficient means of regime change, and death by toxic poisoning was a well-trodden path on that. So mm -hmm. there were rumors that Alexander was poisoned. They shouldn't be discounted in, in my book, and they certainly had some virility at the time, and those rumors went far and wide even though the mainstream sources suggest there was no such rumor at Babylon and he died um, from natural causes. But that looks fabricated. Mm. And uh, as listeners may know, Alexander's father, Philip, was assassinated. And that, like you said, that was quite common in the Macedonian royal court. Well, well Alexander and Philip did their fair share of wiping out competitors and including their own lion as well, because you know, ancient Macedon had an oversupply of kings. Um, the, the kings were polygamous. They had a number of wives. That meant a number of competing sons and daughters from different rival branches. And that was always going to be a problem. And Philip was no different. He had seven wives we know of, um, two sons. Luckily, one was a half-wit. And Alexander had, you know, half-sisters and full-sisters as well. Hmm. And, you know, just to give listeners an idea, there are modern day doctors and scientists who have published papers trying to reverse engineer the symptoms that Alexander was ex was apparently experiencing based on the sources we have and trying to identify what caused his death. And so what I'm hearing from you is that there's no reason to rule out the poisoning possibility, uh, that that's, that's something that you think is definitely still on the table. Well, I think it should be. I mean, one of the most recent and detailed reports by the University of Otago in New Zealand suggests that white hellebore, for example, as a poison, would have fitted the symptoms better than anything else. But you've got to remember that the sources we have um, are from the Roman period. There's no sources from, there's no contemporary eyewitness primary historian sources from Alexander's day whatsoever. Mm. And everything that we read today has been inflated, um, overlaid with rhetoric and agenda. And how he died conflicts in the reports as well. So we really can't try and forensically pinpoint what happened in his final days. Um, the, the, the angle of my book is trying to understand why historians have never forensically tried to analyze why he left the empire 
without any written success instructions, mm. uh, without a last will and testament, we would call it today, hence the title of my book. And that simply doesn't make any sense. And, you know, a decade unraveling this suggests to me there was a great cover up at the time. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So let's get into that. And before we do, I want to touch on this point about the sources and, sure. and give listeners an idea of what we're dealing with here. My impression, and you can tell me how accurate this is and maybe elaborate. My impression is that you had some people at the time who wrote, who were on Alexander's campaign, who were, had a bias toward Alexander and were in a way doing some propaganda for Alexander who wrote biographies and these were distributed through the ancient world on some level. And, and the, those biographies were lost. However, the, during Roman times, sometime around the first centuries AD and BC, something like that, maybe first century AD, there were some Greek Greeks who wrote biographies based on those sources that now are lost and that's what we have basically to work with. Is that how is that as a summary? I should probably yeah, no, it's, leave it's, that it's to a, you. But. It's a good summary. Um, like like everything with Alexander, there's a lot of gray area in between. I mean, the only biography that was probably published during Alexander's lifetime was by the first official historian um, on campaign, Callisthenes, who Alexander had executed. So it was clear, clearly incomplete, and he wouldn't have been happy um, with, with some of it. But that was very much a PR machine, you know, residential PR reporting for the Greek world. Everything else was posthumous. And those on campaign with Alexander, for example, Ptolemy, who inherited power in Egypt, uh, Nearchos, his, his naval officer, Onesicritus, the, the campaign um the campaign philosopher, if you like, and Aristobulus, who was probably an engineer, uh, Chariz, the, the, the usher, they were at war. I mean, literally and figuratively um, in the years after, and they all had axes to grind and grudges to settle. And they created different Alexanders, of course, mainly lauding their part in the campaign, but they were erasing rivals out the scene, damning rivals and putting mm. subtle misinformation in from the very, very beginning of the, the first eyewitnesses account that came out in the decades after Alexander were full of uh, disinformation. Okay. And, and so, the, go, ahead, yeah. go ahead, sorry. Well, and then in the chaos of the Hellenistic period in the successor wars, an awful lot of the material that did emerge was destroyed. I mean, even Polybius, you know, um, mourned that the great histories of the Hellenistic kings had disappeared even by his day. So a lot of the Roman writers, and you're quite right, it was in the first century BC or AD that most of them came out. A lot of the Roman period writers um, were using intermediary sources, not the eyewitnesses, or they were using eyewitnesses, but with a bias of their own because they were either in the Roman um, Republic, which sort of vilified Alexander, or they were in the Principate when the Roman Empire started lauding Alexander and trying to emulate them. And of course, that had a slant on how they wrote themselves. So that's very important to realize that the second generation of, of writers had their own agendas as well. And this was centuries after Alexander died. As you said, Alexander died in the fourth century BC. And so we're talking hundreds of years later. These are the sources that when you, you know, read most biographies about Alexander today, or you see most depictions of him, 
they're relying primarily on on these sources from hundreds of years later. Is that right? Yeah, we we rely exclusively on Roman period sources written 300 to 450 years after Alexander the Great died. Um, They were of mixed nationalities as well. I mean, Diodorus was a Greek Sicilian. Arian was from Bithynia, but he was a Roman general. Plutarchos was Greek from Chironia. Justin, we don't even know who he was, but he was a Roman. And Curtius was probably a senator in the first century um, AD. So you've got a real eclectic mixture of, of writers who were all trying to make a name and to some degree sensationalize or make a point. And that is all we have, plus, you know, anecdotes and some metaphrases and paraphrases from lost other writers. But those are a few lines here and there. So this is what makes the, this is part of what makes the investigation into Alexander uh, so fascinating is trying to figure out what we can rely on comparing these different sources. Um, you, you mentioned that the focus of, of your most recent book is about the last will and testament of Alexander. And there seems to be a, a discrepancy, it sounds like, uh, in, in how a lot of people are interpreting that. I mean, the, the story that I think some, some listeners might be familiar with is that Alexander, you know, his final words uttering that the empire must go to the strongest or something to that effect something dramatic like that. Um, Why do you think there was not a succession plan or, or, or it sounds like maybe you think there was, and it's just been covered up? Yeah, well, I'm convinced there was. I mean, okay, so we have three competing versions. If, If you rationalize everything you read in the sources, you can, you can boil it down to three competing deaths and they can't exist side by side in history as fact you know one's a lie the other one's right they're they're mutually exclusive so one version um which has entered mainstream history in the most formative way is in the books of the roman writers arian and plutarch and they quote the royal journal or royal diaries entry for the last days of alexander's life which claimed he died comatose speechless and there was no suspicions of any ill doing at babylon at the time it was part of this protracted illness that people have tried to unravel and that probably came from ptolemy's first posthumous biography written of alexander the great and we know that what aristobulus wrote corroborated that completely because Arian tells us that in the final pages. Mm -hmm. So that seems to say there was no ill doing, there was no poisoning. Um, He didn't leave any succession instructions whatsoever. He didn't leave it to the strongest. In fact, nothing was said. Very convenient for the successors who were fighting uh, in the successive wars. There is a conflicting version in the Roman, what we call Vulgate, the most popular Um, version, which you can read in Diodorus, you can read in Curtius and Justin, where he was vocal to the end. Alexander, he he did leave his kingdom to the strongest or the most worthy of men when his men were saying, you know, Alexander, come on, who do you leave power to? Let us know. And he even quipped on his deathbed that he could foresee the funeral games that were going to follow. Typically, when a hero or a king died, you would throw these magnificent games in their honor. But this was a cynical... Um, description of he could foresee the wars that would, the civil war that would cause by him deliberately asking the strongest to fight it out. I mean, none of these are credible. I mean, these were sophisticated people in a society 
that recognized wills, written testaments, succession documents, used them, and we have evidence of in Alexander's court, in his schooling, upbringing, in Athens and Macedon, of the use of succession documents, which historians really have, it's been a blind spot when they've been analyzing this. So um, to me, those endings aren't credible, and the credible ending is his last will and testament, which does appear in alternative documents, and I'm happy to, you know, mm. describe those. Wow. Okay. So that's fascinating. I haven't, I haven't heard that. I've, I've heard different versions of kind of what you just went through with these competing kind of, you know, and, and I have the same impression that you do that, um, you know, it always seemed a little bit uh, hazy and unreliable. Uh, they the, contradictory the different accounts of his death. So, yeah, uh, please please continue. Um, uh, what kind of alternative possibilities are there? Okay. Um, well, again, to put things in a little bit of perspective, we have today the fulsome written will of Alexander's teacher, Aristotle. Hmm. We know that a king a century after Alexander, a Macedonian king, left his will and had it read out to the populace so everybody knew it was in it, so it couldn't be manipulated or hidden. We know that Alexander's regent, Antipater in Macedon, wrote a will and appointed Aristotle as the executor to it. And we also know that Alexander's royal secretary, Eumenes of Cardia, wrote a will in his tent on the eve of his last battle when he foresaw the treachery coming his way. These are indisputable. They're in the sources. So you've got to ask yourself, you know, in, in, in an era when the legally sanctioned written testaments were there, why Alexander would not have use that mechanism to do what he usually did, to manipulate the world around him, ensure the survival of his family, distribute power amongst the empire, and continue his legacy. So that's the perspective we're looking at here. So um, the reason that the mainstream history and historians have this blind spot on his will is because the will appears in the Greek Alexander Romance, mm. which is a book of fables. And the book is clearly a bit like the Arthurian legends. It's nothing more than a conflated, um, you know, view of the campaigns and his life. And it's the sort of book that appears... Uh, it was greatly read and transformed into 24 languages around the world as this great book of fables around Alexander. And once the will, and the last will and testament and the conspiracy theory detail to poison him was absorbed into that, of course, you can understand why history has just discounted it. But the problem is, for me, is that historians pretty much universally today realized that, that was never an original part of the romance. It was bolted on later. And the, the last will and testament, along with the conspiracy theory suggesting he was poisoned and accusing the poisoners, naming them, the whole thing, was actually written by one of his generals in the successor wars in the decade after he died in order to ensure their survival, damn the opposition, point the finger at those they were fighting against, and if it was a political pamphlet issued by his generals, and there's been a lot of studies trying to pinpoint who, and I certainly have pinpointed who in my, in my book fairly, you know, um, categorically as far as I'm concerned, um, there would have been logic, only one logic in reissuing Alexander's will. That is if knowledge of an original or rumour of an original 
was abounding around the Hellenistic world and had been suppressed. Because whilst the will was the absolute legitimizing document, which gave his generals chunks of the empire to manage and rule in their own right, they were not prepared to rule in the name of Alexander's half-breed son or sons. And it was the document which both legitimized them and yet fettered their ultimate power to this next generation of hybrid sons. And Alexander was clearly trying to create a hybrid dynasty. We can see that by the weddings at Susa, the mass weddings some years before he died. So the will had to be suppressed and written out of history. And that's exactly what happened. Wow. I have a copy of the Alexander Romance. I think it's called, my version is called the Greek Alexander Romance. I guess there are different versions. Is that right? Yes. The the original version was in Greek. It was probably written in Alexandria. Um, The great entrepreneur of creative writing in in the the century after Alexander. The Greek Alexander Romance um, has, yes, been transformed into many different languages, which have attained their own flavor on the stories. But if you look at chapter three, the very last chapter, there's a very lucid will, very sensibly written, exactly the sort of document, the succession document you would have expected Alexander to to have made. Now, it's, it's politically skewed, and because it's bolted onto this conspiracy theory suggesting 20 of Alexander's top men at a banquet poisoned him and only six of them were innocent and not guilty. Um, It it was deemed unbelievable because Mm. that is political meddling. You can see that the conspiracy theory is, is one of those six innocents logically writing this to damn the opposition. But the last will and testament itself is an extraordinarily lucid, sensible document. Interesting. And so what you're saying is it's been overlooked because there's all this other clearly false and fantastical stuff in the Alexander romance. You know, it's you're not the first person that has um, that I've, I've spoken to who has brought in the Alexander romance and some interesting details from that that may actually have historical yeah. uh, implications. Um, Andrew Chug, who I've talked to, has found some interesting clues in there about the possible location of the tomb of Alexander the Great. And, uh, you know, it's, um, it, it sounds like it's something that uh, historians are a little hesitant to, to touch, but there's, there's real information that's possibly in that document. There, there are nuggets of gold in there. And, it, it, you know, perhaps more, more tellingly is that modern historians realize there are more nuggets of, you know, fool's gold in the mainstream histories Mm. that we consider trustworthy. Um, So you've got to treat it very carefully, but by virtue of the fact historians realize that the last will and testament uh, and the conspiracy theory were bolted on later because it was a very colorful ending for the romance compilers to use. Um, And not only that, there is another, historical fragment called the Mezzopitomy of of part of Alexander's campaign, which uses the will as well. So it's it's not something that emerged with the romance. We know it was floating around the world, the Greek world, um, in the decades after Alexander died. And uh, quite clearly, and it was, it, was a, it was a virulent political document, which was designed like an atomic bomb to explode the whole successive wars and reveal the cover-up um, because the, you know, the, the rival kings really wanted to see Alexander's line wiped out. And of course, it was wiped out by them in collusion to clear the path for them declaring themselves kings across the empire. 
Wow. And okay. So um, let me make sure I'm understanding this. So uh, what you're proposing is that there was a more formal will and testament of Alexander and that his and that we have some access to what that was. Historians have largely overlooked it for the reasons you've laid out. And it basically, are, are you suggesting that it, it, uh, it sought to transfer power to Alexander's um, son or sons, but it was suppressed by his generals? Yeah, exactly. I mean, why would Alexander not pass power right. to his sons. Um, if you look at the Sousa mass weddings in, in a few years before his death, he was marrying his top echelon of generals and officers to the cream of Persian, uh, the Persian women, the Persian royalty to create a hybrid dynasty because you can imagine the prejudice therefore would be gone uh, between the Greek and the Persian world. And it would have been a, a gov it would have been a an authority that his sons could credibly have ruled in emerging of the two empires um so when the pamphlet was reissued in the successor wars a wholesale campaign to eradicate it had to be written so i believe ptolemy fabricated the royal journal suggesting that alexander died speechless and intestate at babylon and the next formative history which survived in Rome was written by Clitarchus in Alexandria under the authority of Ptolemy or the Ptolemic kings. And he likewise had to toe the line on dumping the detail of the will. He did incorporate the conspiracy theory to, to you know, color up his last pages, but there's no mention of a transfer of power because he couldn't possibly do it. And then the third history of Aristobulus came out and Aristobulus was writing in Cassandrea, um, founded by Cassander, the regent's son who killed all of Alexander's family to clear the path for power. So he couldn't mention a will which had legitimized power to the sons. You had this triumvirate of early accounts coming out, which were the nail in the coffin, really, for the um, existence of the continued existence of the will. And is it, is it right to say that the will, I mean, because of course, Alexander was, was loved. He was this huge figure in a, in a, in ideal circumstances, you know, you'd think his will would be uh, adhered to on some level. Is, is it right? I mean, are you basically saying it was untenable because of this tension between tr Alexander trying to combine the Persian empire and the Greek society together that essentially his Greek generals were just unwilling to, you know, they, they basically were unwilling to hand all of this to Alexander's son or sons. Is that? Well, essentially, but they had their own ambitions beyond that. If you look at right. the successor wars, you look at, you know, Seleucus and Lysimachus and Ptolemy um, and Antigonus. I mean, they were fighting for control of the whole empire, not just their chunk. Yeah. But the mainstream history has assumed that the inheritances that were levered out at Babylon, some sort of 22 of them, were made by Perdiccas, Alexander's second universally hated Perdiccas, um, the second in command after Hephaestion had died, and that he allocated, you know, to his design, the chunks of empire. That's ridiculous. Um, it was, he was executing Alexander's will. Because to think that these great ambitious generals that had served with Alexander for, in some cases, 20 years, had not discussed their just rewards for a decade of campaigning 
is ridiculous. They knew where they wanted to be. They had solicited Alexander for their chunk of the empire. And wills don't get written on deathbed. They get written years before and updated from time to time because death can come any time on campaign. And certainly for Alexander, near-death issues you know, happen regularly, especially in India at the siege of the Malians. So there would have been a succession document in place that was probably updated at Babylon um, for the situation then. And that was the legitimizing document for what happened for the distribution of empire thereafter. In the distribution of empire, would that be, these are the areas where these different generals would be uh, governors and the empire would still be kept. I mean, Alexander presumably would have wanted his empire to stay one empire. Is that, am I right in saying that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, but you know, it, it, this was new territory. I mean, no Macedonian or Greek had ever overseen such vast provinces. So this was wholly new territory. And the fabric of the will was, of course, being expanded um, beyond that that they were designed for. And the assembly of Macedons, this gathering of troops after his death, were voting on the power transfer, again, stretching the, the authority and the legitimacy of what would normally have been a, an enclave to usher in a new king or a court trial or something like that. So, you know, conceptually, it would have been the Argeid or Temanid empire of Alexander's son kept intact by these brilliant generals who would defend the borders and have their chunk to administer and the, the wealth and the tax systems to milk. Um, but of course, that fell apart once Alexander's, and it did take some years to fall apart, and the, the falling apart really happened after Alexander's mother and secretary, who were allies in this, and in, in my book, it was them that reissued Alexander's will as the royalists trying to keep this intact. It was only after they were killed and his final son was killed, did the real ambition of these generals show itself and they start invading each other. Hmm. And so I'll remind listeners that we are talking to David Grant about his book out this month called The Last Will and Testament of Alexander the Great, The Truth Behind the Death That Changed the Greco-Persian World Forever. And this really is something that people have been debating for, you know, at this point, um, thousands of years. Uh, and it continues to be a pivotal moment in the ancient world. And so can you talk a little bit about Alexander's family at the time. Uh, you you just mentioned Olympias, his mother, who was back in Greece while Alexander was on campaign and died in Babylon. But there also seems to be some ambiguity around his his uh, kids. And I've I've I I guess it's confirmed that he had one son, but there's another son that's it's unclear if that person existed or not. Am I uh, am I right in saying that? What is your uh, appraisal of kind of Alexander's family at the time of his death. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it's a fascinating family. I, I wrote a lot about it in my book on the tombs. You know, we found the tombs of his family and kind of who's in which tomb, who's who is, is a fascinating ongoing study. Um, Alexander had two sons, um, but it appears by the mainstream sources that, again, I, I questioned this, that he legitimized one. He married Roxanne. He had a, she was pregnant when he died. So it wasn't clear that a son would be born. It could have been a daughter. Um, and he had a son called Heracles by a mistress, Barzin, who was a Persian royal of part Rhodian heritage. Um, 
uh, and that son had been sired some years earlier on campaign. So he had a, a son who was then maybe six years old and a son in utero um, with Roxanne pregnant. He had a half-brother um, in Babylon who was introduced to this great theatre you know, after Alexander's death by the infantry, um, which makes, makes a fascinating story because the half-brother, um, Aridaeus, was mentally defective in some way. He could have been autistic. He could have been epileptic, but more probably autistic. Hmm. He was the son of Alexander's father by a previous wife, not Olympias, by Philina of Larissa. And um, so he was a half-wit, essentially, that couldn't rule. But when the cream of Alexander's generals were trying to promote themselves as inheritors of the empire or group rule or rejecting Alexander's son, they brought Aridaeus into this grand assembly meeting um, of the troops and said, hey, we've got a king here. Why do we need a half-caste barbarian son? Let's make Aridaeus the king. Of course, he would have been a figurehead king because he was a half-wit and would have needed governors around him, but it gave the infantry power immediately at Babylon as their figurehead when the aristocratic companions, the cavalry companions, were trying to carve up the empire between them. And there was Perdiccas, who may have um, been pledged in marriage to Roxanne or certainly passed Alexander's ring in some sources as her guardian. So you had these various factions immediately in the days after Alexander's death. So apart from the, the two sons and the half-wit brother, Alexander had one full sister, Roxanne, um, back in Macedon. His mother was in Epirus um, because she and the region Antipater had fallen out very bitterly mm. some years before. And um, there was, unfortunately, for the warring successors, there was also a granddaughter of Alexander's father, um, by a king that Alexander murdered on his accession um, because he could have been, you know, he had a legitimacy to claiming the throne as well. And she and her mother, one of Philip's wives, journeyed over to Asia to get involved in the game of thrones. And Perdiccas had to send his brother to intercept them and the mother was murdered and the daughter ended up marrying Aridaeus. And that was the great catalyst for part of the successor wars to start. Wow. Yeah, that's that's well, what I'm saying. This oversupply of kings—you've got rival branches from different wives um, and their children all vying for power at the same time. So you've presented a very compelling theory about kind of the circumstances around Alexander's death, and it—you know—this um, is my first time really hearing about it, and it strikes me as more plausible than a lot of the, like you said, the kind of the more mainstream narratives. I wonder, uh, you know, there are, there are so many historians, um, both professional historians, amateur scholars, et cetera, that are experts on Alexander. Have you, what has been the reaction that you've seen um, putting this uh, theory out into the world? I know it's just rolling out in book form, but have you had conversations with uh, historians or other Alexander researchers and experts about this kind of thing and what's the general you know do you get a lot of pushback or is there a sense that this is you know something that uh other people have considered as well what, what has been the reaction 
Oh, okay, it's it's interesting. I mean, it's early days. It's early doors and early days. The book's only been out a month. Mm. Um, I have some um, academic reviews by some well-known academic scholars who said, thank God at last you've unraveled this or thrown some light on what, what's a very, very, you know, it's an enigma inside a paradox, inside a, a riddle. And uh, you're the first one to throw some light, which has been fantastic feedback. Yeah. Um, I can tell you that nobody has proposed it before or I've read everything there is on this over 10 years. Um, nobody has given credence to the existence of a genuine will. An awful lot of people have tried to work out who wrote the reissued will, the politically skewed will, and thrown it out there in the successor wars to you know, put this time bomb out there to explode the reality. Uh, and I do that in my book as well. I'm certainly suggesting somebody that nobody has suggested before. Um, there will be pushback. Um, there always is. Uh, the, the community of Alexander historians and scholars has always been divided. Um, I can certainly tell you that on from my previous writing on the tombs with who thinks who's in which tomb. And it, it can get a very bitter. Um, but you've got to open your mind and you've got to look at new avenues of investigation. And sometimes you've got to simply just look at pure logic and some sense in this. Um, we, we have been straitjacketed in our minds over 2,000 years to accepting these mainstream accounts. And, you know, he either said nothing when he died or he left his empire to the strongest. I mean, neither of which are Alexander, if you read everything about the guy. Um, and when there is evidence of a last will and testament. And one last thing I, I will add that one of historians, Diodorus, followed the greatest eyewitness of the generation of the successor wars. Hieronymus of Cardia, who is related to Alexander's court secretary, Eumenes of Cardia. In a chapter of Diodorus, who was following Hieronymus, he says, and Alexander honoring Rhodes left his testament there, distributing the whole of his empire and otherwise honored the island. And no historian has ever pulled that out and said, hey, why on earth is this coming from an eyewitness ultimately without us looking at this in a little more detail? And, and like you said, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't characteristic of Alexander and it wasn't characteristic of, you know, the culture or any kind of uh, logical plan. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's something that's a little more cinematic and that's been grasped onto as the truth that he just, you know, let let his generals fight it out or, you know, had some final quote about leaving it to the strongest. But I I completely agree. It doesn't seem uh, to hold a lot of water under scrutiny. Um, yeah. I want to I want to touch on uh, the tombs a little bit. Um, could could and, I just add one one yeah, one sure. thing that I you know, we're talking freehand here. So it's, it's hard to round up all the yeah, information. When Alexander died at Babylon, although it says he didn't write a last will and testament or any succession instructions, apparently what are known as his last plans were found in the secretariat. There was a folio of last plans which listed you know, ongoing campaigning, the, the projects to build harbors in Babylon, some population transfers, um, which are believable as part of the ongoing campaigning. But also there are last wishes that look very posthumous that can be read in Diodorus as well. Um, temples, mausoleums, donatives and gifts and statues of him and his family to be built around the empire. And at the very end of these last plans is a description of 
the funeral bier that's supposed to be built for Alexander, which in fact took two years. It was so ornate to build. Mm. And those are bolted on. So I believe the last plans are part of his final instructions and they've just been misinterpreted as what they are. So we do potentially have an echo of some of the his, his last wishes very clearly in front of us in, in the pages of Diodorus. Mm. Okay. I, I want to, I, well, well, and now I, you know, uh, like you said, talking freehand, I, I think I also, before we get to the tombs, have to ask you about a subject we've talked about previously on the podcast, uh, Alexander's tomb. It's one of the great mysteries, Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, what happened to Alexander's remains? Why did they fall out of the historical record? Do you, is this something that you've looked into at all? Do you have a uh, an informed uh, you know perspective on on the uh, final destination of Alexander's lost tomb? Um, look, my, I, I can give you this perspective. Um, there's one great question: Did Ptolemy rescue or hijack Alexander's body? Mm. Okay, uh, in my opinion, um, and again, I, I pose this in the book: the second in command, Perdiccas, had already based himself in Syria which would have been the most sensible place in the empire to govern from, bearing in mind you've got to govern, you know, going back to Macedon and right up to the, the Indian border. And it had a, a network of roads. It would have been the most strategic place. And in fact, Antigonus built his empire in Syria uh, and, and various cities thereafter. The funeral beer we know was on the way to Syria, and I think that's the reason why. And it was hijacked near Damascus. So I think against, potentially against Alexander's wishes, it, it, and I, I do believe it's credible that Alexander would have been wished to be buried in Alexandria, um, his new great city where Ptolemy eventually buried him. But I think Perdiccas was going to take the body back to Macedon and nobody, none of the army could have complained because that's where all the ancient kings, 25 of them to that point, over 500 years have been buried in Aigai, the ancient capital of kings. And there was an oracle that said, you know, as soon as the first king isn't buried there, the empire will fall apart. So I think he would have been very popular to do that. Ptolemy hijacked the body, potentially fulfilling Alexander's wishes. And that was the trigger. That was the spark of the successor wars, along with other elements as well. And he took the body and put it in Memphis originally because it was more easily defendable than Alexandria, which was a city under construction. We have to remember that at the time. And later, and we don't know if it was in Ptolemy's reign or generations later, that the body was interned in the Sema in Alexandria because there's conflicting sources. We only know for any certainty it was there through the Roman period. The Roman empires have visited the corpse. It was on display and... Uh, there are various stories attached to the empire, the Roman emperors that saw it. After that, it is all conjecture. And Mr. Chuck, for example, has done you know, amazing research in, into, uh, and that's not my area of research. We simply don't know if a Roman empire, emperor took it back with him. We don't know if it were barbarian invasions. We don't know if an earthquake destroyed the tomb. There are various theories surrounding it. So I, I have no idea what happened to his body. I can only tell you it didn't get back to Macedon to the traditional graveyard of the kings. Interesting. Yeah. So it sounds like you go into a lot more detail about what happened initially with Alexander's body or during that few years afterwards. But then, you know, the ultimate the ultimate uh, conclusion to it all is hundreds and hundreds of years later. And, uh, and and like I said, we've talked about that some on the podcast and I'm sure it will be an ongoing 
you know, mystery that we'll check in on from time to time. So you mentioned the Macedonian royal tombs. Yeah, yeah. This is one of the great uh, archaeological uh, discoveries. Uh, you wrote a book about it in 2019 called Unearthing the Family of Alexander the Great, the remarkable discovery of the royal tombs of Macedon. Can you just g- talk a little bit about what these tombs are and what they meant in this ancient dynasty? Yeah, um, you know, it's a haunting tale. Um, Aigai, Aigai, depending on how you pronounce it, was the first capital of Macedon, mm. um, founded sometime in the 7th century, potentially the 8th century BC. We don't really know how or by whom there's sort of legendary kings be- before recorded kings. And it's a wonderful site. And um, the, the political capital was later moved to Pella, um, you know, a day's ride by horse away from there. Now, in 1977, a great tumulus, a big earthen hill, was excavated in northern Greece uh, by the modern town of Vergina, and it revealed a cluster of tombs. Remarkably, two of them were intact, and this is unheard of because at that stage, 50 of the 51 Macedonian tombs that had been discovered um, were looted in antiquity, and Macedonian is the style of the tomb. And the the treasures and the riches found in tomb two were remarkable, and they're on display at the museum in Vergina today. It's a subterranean museum built as if you're going under this earthen tumulus. So it's incredibly haunting and incredibly beautiful. But since 1977, um, four tombs have been discovered, two looted, um, one other unlooted tomb with an adolescent in there, again, with beautiful possessions in there, certainly possessions of royalty, um, magnificent weapons and armor and jewels and uh, this sort of thing. So the debate has been who is in tomb two and tomb three and tomb one and tomb four. And there's been this vicious divide between academics to think it's Philip's father, um, Alexander's father, Philip II, or it is Aridaeus, the half-wit who was taken back to Macedon and buried there by Cassander after Alexander's mother, Olympias, had him executed. I mean, this is a tale of great executions here over the next few years when they were all wiped out. And there's great evidence on both sides. Um, I can tell you that working, I'm working with the original archaeologists and anthropologists, and we have recently been doing DNA tests, um, radiocarbon dating on the bones, and strontium tests on the bones to figure out where they were born, if they were born locally or not. And I can tell you now that categorically, the evidence points at Philip II, um, the father of Alexander the Great. But the great mystery is who is the warrior woman buried in the antechamber of the same tomb, buried as a warrior with a Scythian bow and arrow case and weapons and armor and great honor and great wealth with a sort of tiara one of the most beautiful pieces of jewelry from the ancient world. And again, there's been great, was it one of his wives? Was it one of Philip's wives? And uh, I have postulated a new identity based upon the new evidence in that book as well. So it's been a fascinating ride being down the tombs with the archaeologists and looking at the latest forensics. And so these are the tombs of most likely Alexander the Great's immediate family that have been discovered. And you mentioned that this was a... uh, Many of Alexander's ancestors, the Argia dynasty, was buried in these tombs. Have we found older generations of kings or or anything like that? 
Yeah, the, the tombs across sprawled across the plain, go back to the Iron Age. I mean, it was inhabited 700 years before Alexander or, or even longer. Um, when the funerary customs changed, it was only really in Alexander's day when great wealth was coming into the nation, um, did cremation on a grand scale in this sort of Homeric style of the, the cremation Achilles gave uh, Patroclus at Troy come back in into form. A lot of the graves have inhumed, simply buried bones in, in boxes in the ground, cyst tombs. Um, amazingly today, DNA can be extracted from 2,300-year-old bones. Um, whether we can extract it from bones that have been cremated, uh, well, I know we can, <laughs> not to give away too many secrets, but um, um, so yes, um, there are clusters of queens because all the bones seem to be those of females there, um, and there are clusters going back in time. So what frustratingly they never did was write on the tombs, this is the burial place of so-and-so. So you're always looking for clues amongst the artifacts. I'm dying to go to these tombs. I was supposed to go to Macedon, the area, uh, last year and COVID and, you know, other yeah. things, but um, I'm dying to go. It, it looks incredible. The museum that you described looks incredible. I, I do have one more question related to all this. I, in the last couple of years, I think there was a, a discovery, uh, maybe at a different complex, um, that some people were saying maybe the tomb of Hyphaishan. Are you familiar yeah. with that finding? Yes, and what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, you're talking about Amphipolis, um, which was annexed by Philip II when he started expanding Macedon before Alexander came to the throne. And it's a great fortified city on the Strymon River. Um, and this Castor Hill is, is the location of the tomb was found, uh, the entrance was only found in 2014, and it's got uh, several grand chambers inside that look to have been built after the reign of Alexander the Great. Um, and nearby, there is a lion, a uh, stone lion, a bit like the Lion of Chironia, um, a bit like the Lion of Hamadan, where Hephaestion died. And because of the similarity to the stone in, in uh, Ekbatana in, in, in Persia, which is modern Hamadan, people have been postulating that it could be Hephaestion that was buried in this um, great hill. But it was a multiple burial site, as the log tombs were. There were people buried there over a number of years. It's unlikely, I think, he died in Ekbatana. Um, there's no record of his body ever being ferried back anywhere. Mm. Um, it's been postulated that Alexander's mother, after she was tossed out after being executed by Cassandra and never buried formally. Could her bones could have been collected and possibly buried there. Um, it could be one of Alexander's generals, for example, Nearchos, who was um, associated with Amphipolis. Uh, so there's a number of identities attached to the tomb, but we simply don't know. Wow. Well, I, I want to thank you for talking to us today. I know that we've only been able to touch on a fraction of probably all the details and things in your book, but it's just the nature of, you know, a 45-minute conversation like this. Um, I think a lot of listeners are going to be interested in checking out your, bro your books and your work. Is there a place that they can go? Obviously, these books are available on Amazon. Uh, is there another place you want to tell listeners about where, you know, a website or anything like that where they can follow you? I, I think the easiest thing is to say, like like most books today, it, it's pretty much available anywhere. I mean, in America, Barnes and Noble, Amazon, the usual retail outlets, yeah, you can purchase it from. Um, in the, in the UK, you know, all all the big book 
bookstores, Waterstones, WH Smith. Um, and it's available in ebook form as well as hardback as well. So it should be available anywhere that's convenient for you to get hold of it. Great, great. And it sounds like you also are planning on releasing another book in 2022. Uh, rapid pace here of publishing, uh, you know, uh, every couple of years. That's impressive. Well, it, it, that, that betrays 10 years of study behind this. I mean, it, it's not that I'm deciding to write a book. It's, it's that the research has been done and it's just packaging it into bite-sized releases of information. Um, the next book is called Eyewitnesses at War, Sources for Alexander and Why You Can't Trust Them. <laughs> so uh, it pretty much says everything about what I think behind these, these mainstream accounts. And I will say, I think you've done an incredible job communicating all of this. Uh, it's really shed some light on this subject for me. And I read quite a bit about these kinds of things. And this has been mostly new information for me. So thank you, David. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on. And maybe we can talk again next year when your next book comes out. That, that, well, thanks very much for having me on today. Um, enjoyed it, much appreciated it. And um, yeah, look forward to speaking again. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.